This is KDLL, 91.9 FM, Kenai, Soldatna, listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula. You are tuned in to the Kenai Conversation. I'm Hunter Morrison. On this week's Kenai Conversation, we're joined by Ian Hartman, Associate Professor of History at the University of Alaska Anchorage and author of the book Black History in the Last Frontier, African American History in Alaska. We spoke about Alaska's black history from African American whalers in the 1840s to notable figures in the modern day. And, you know, what can you tell me about some of the first African American people who found their way to Alaska? Well, Alaska's black history really predates uh, certainly the Treaty of Session, 1867, you know, think William Henry Seward and the Russians and, and all, all that. Uh, the, the earliest um, known African-American peoples traveled to what we, what we consider today Alaska's waters and, and made landfall even probably as early as, as the 1840s and 50s. And uh, they were whalers. They they came up with um, with these whaling crews based typically out of um, out of San Francisco, but then also um, on the East Coast in places like New Bedford in Massachusetts, um, Nantucket, also Massachusetts. And uh, what had happened really by the by about the 1830s and 40s is that the um, the North Atlantic whaling stock had been pretty well depleted. And so the whaling industry shifts to the North Pacific uh, with sperm whales, among, among other species. And so at that time, uh, black whalers who had long been part of the, of the nation's whaling industry is one of the few industries that they could they kind of rise to the ranks, um, made that transition. And we know that that some of the some of the whalers who made their way into Alaska waters and Alaska proper in the 1840s and 50s were very likely uh, escaped slaves, formerly enslaved, um, free men of color, you know, based in um, in New England and maybe the American West. So that's really where the story begins. And, you know, what can you tell me about the life um, as an African-American whaler in the waters of Alaska? Uh, well, it would have been it would have been been like really any other whaler in, in that case, uh, meaning extraordinarily dangerous, um, brutal, um, punctuated uh, extended periods of boredom punctuated by uh, by moments of of exhilaration. <laughs> uh, oftentimes you would you would be out at sea for for several years. Uh, most of most of the people who were were whalers wouldn't necessarily do it for the long term. You know, there were certainly some uh, some whale captains who who did it for a long time. I, I write about a gentleman, um, William, William Shorey, and uh, Shorey was was one of the top whalers, an African American man based out of the Bay Area who made his way up to Alaska. That was a little bit later in the 1890s. But for the most part, you know, these guys, whether they were white or black or Native American, uh, sort of a, a long history of, um, of, of these multicultural, multi-ethnic whaling crews, you know, they would, the, the crewmen would go out for maybe, as I said, two, three, four years. They may, they may go on two or three of these whaling excursions, but the goal was to save some money and to, and to move on. I mean, this was not seen as, as work that you would want to do for um, 10, 15, 20 years. It was extremely uh, grueling, intense, and, and, and could be quite deadly. 
And, you know, did any of these whalers um, end, end up residing in the state of Alaska or before it was a state, rather? Yeah, you know, I, I think so. We don't have a lot of good documentation of, uh, of, of people who had stayed here the entire time. But what you do find is that you've got some, some multiracial communities that, that exist in, along the Alaska coast, western Alaska, um, kind of along the, the Bering Sea. And, and it's pretty clear that, uh, that some of these whalers, again, both white and black, had um had made families with some of the indigenous uh residents and had lived for a period of time and and so you know you do have some of these mixed race communities in coastal alaska by the end of the by the end of the 19th century certainly into the early 20th century but again i mean for the most part you know alaska was a pretty challenging place for a lot of these folks to live it was quite different from where they were coming from whether that would have been like you know new england or the american south or even you know kind of much farther Farther south on the in the American um, West, but uh, but I, I don't know of of any kind of you know single uh, black whaler who who decided to kind of stay uh, and then you know put down down roots for generations. Like I said, I, I know of plenty of whalers who had come and who had spent some period of time and then they ended up leaving. Uh, some of whom may have even had families. And the one that I, again, that I will mention is um, William Shorey because he was such a celebrated captain of a, of a whaling crew. Now let's fast forward to the gold rush in, you know, Yukon and Alaska. Um, uh-huh. what, what was life like for African-Americans uh, in, in Alaska during this time? Well, you, you had uh, kind of two contingents of, uh, of black men uh, and some black women too, but uh, but the black men who came up with the gold rush, I'll, I'll divide into two categories. The um, the first would have been miners who came up, and there were absolutely some some black gold miners, and they made their way through uh, usually Skagway or Dai or uh, the uh, the Canadian route that would have been been more overland. And they uh, they did pretty well. Uh, most of them, most of them, at least maybe broke even or or left. Uh, <laughs> not necessarily any worse off than they came. There are a couple of examples of uh, black gold miners who did very well. One of the ones that I, I write about at some length is a fellow by the name of Saint John Atherton. Atherton came up and and made a lot of money, you know, certainly on the order of millions of dollars. And he ends up being one of the uh, people who's involved in funding the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. So he, he takes his wealth out and is able to really put it to use in the service of uh, educating African-American peoples uh, down South. And so that's, that's kind of a, a success story. You may have heard the, the famous dictum of the gold rush, which is it's always better to mine the miners than the mine for gold, because most of the people who mine for gold actually don't do that well. Uh, you know, they, they may have had some very modest gold strikes, but then they kind of blow it all at camp and they get into trouble gambling and carousing. The person to actually leave any gold rush, whether it's, you know, the 49ers in, in, uh, in California or the Klondike gold rush or Pike's Peak down in Colorado. I mean, you know, it's it's very difficult to to get ahead on this, but there but there are a few, and um, Atherton's one that you might know. 
you also get the people who set up businesses again to to quote mine the miners and so you've got uh you've got some black men and women who come up who recognize that it's a little bit of a better safer bet to open up an inn to sell provisions to uh to house some of the some of the miners to cook for them to do their laundry uh, to maybe you know have some sort of a business or basically serve as an entrepreneur, and so um, one woman who I write about, Bessie Couture, she she opens up a, a laundry a laundromat and an inn in a restaurant, and I, I as far as I can tell, I think she's the the first um, black female business owner in uh, in Alaska, very much so tied to the gold rush, and so that's the that's the first category of African-Americans who came in during the gorge. The second category would have been soldiers. And so uh, in Skagway in 1899, kind of towards the tail end of the gold rush, the gold rush begins in 1896, the, um, the, the company L Buffalo soldiers arrived to relieve a contingent of white soldiers who had been posted up in Skagway to ensure law and order as tens of thousands of miners came through Skagway and route to the gold fields um, outside of Dawson along, you know, the Bonanza Creek Klondike area. And so you've got this contingent of, um, of black soldiers who, uh, who take up uh, a post in Skagway and are really in it kind of in charge of, of making sure that, that Skagway makes this transition from a lawless gold rush town, kind of think of the wild west frontier days to a more settled, stable community. And so they're there to provide uh, law enforcement. And they stay and they stay until about 1902, spring of 1902, and uh, eventually leave. And some of them will go off to fight in the, um, you know, the the Spanish American War, some of them will head back down to the, um, to the West Coast and the Mountain West. But, the, but there were there were hundreds of, uh, of black soldiers in Skagway during the during the gold rush. And that's something that I, I think a lot of people may not know. Um, but the, the presence of the black soldiers in Skagway was actually very important to the development of that community. And, you know, for those black soldiers and black miners that found their way to Alaska during that era, um, most of them, I assume, went home after their time uh, here in Alaska was complete. But did any and is there any record of any, you know, African-American people staying in Alaska during this era? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the gold rush far more so than than whaling. Uh, you know, the, so what happens during we, we, you might actually think of it as, as a gold rush era. And so, you know, there were gold strikes before the Klondike and there would be gold strikes after the Klondike. And so what you what you see is that really from about the 1880s, early 1890s, right through um, right about up to the time of World War One, uh, you, you have a series of, of these gold strikes and people almost proliferating around and throughout uh, the interior of Alaska, down the Alaska coast, uh, and then even into on the, on the Canadian side. And so you've got uh, the, the Klondike gold rush, but then you've got strikes in Fairbanks and obviously Nome. Uh, Nome is 1900, 19, 1901, 1902, really the first decade or so of the um, 20th century, you've got you've got a series of these strikes. Fairbanks, of course, is going to be another one. And so some of the black men who come up during the Klondike gold rush will then kind of move into other parts of the interior to 
uh, to mine for gold. One of the one of the famous ones I, I write about is this gentleman named Eugene Swanson. And and in fact, if you go to Swanson, actually, I think had had, had a background in the military too. I could be wrong about that, but uh, if you go to that hotel on the on the um, on the river in Fairbanks. Uh, I don't. I don't know if, if you know the one I'm talking about. It's it's right kind of beyond downtown. Uh, famous famous hotel in in Fairbanks. All of the rooms are named after various homesteaders and um, Alaska natives who were in the area. And and you can actually stay in the in the Eugene Swanson room of this particular hotel. And uh, and Swanson was somebody who who kind of migrated around Alaska. And I don't think he I don't think he was ever necessarily filthy rich from gold mining, but he had staked several claims and managed to do uh, pretty well for himself. That's just one example. I mean, that you know, there, there are many others uh, who who do in fact stay and just again with the, what they'll do is they'll kind of migrate from one gold strike to the next, and that seems to sustain their livelihood for for certainly 15, 20 years. Interesting. And, you know, I read that not long after the gold rush, an adventurous young African-American man by the name of Thomas Beavers um, made his way to mm. the newly formed community of Anchorage um, from Seattle, I believe. What can you tell me about his impact on the city of Anchorage and the state of Alaska as a whole? Yeah, Tom Beavers is is a fascinating character. So, you know, he's he comes to Anchorage. This this is after the gold rush. I, I wouldn't associate um there there's some dispute whether you pronounce his name Beavers or Bevers. I, I tend to pronounce it Beavers. But he um but he does come to Anchorage at the time of its infancy when Anchorage is being really developed as a as a railroad camp to support the the construction of the Alaska Railroad. And so this is the 19 teens, 1920s. And uh, and Thomas Beavers arrives, and he immediately gets involved in local um, local politics. But but from kind of a civics perspective, I think he he has a, a deep care for um, for the community, and and he is quite well regarded. He uh, he invests with a group of people in a little piece of land just on the outskirts of town that will be uh, the the site of the first fur rendezvous. Um, and, and he'll then go on to to serve in uh, in representative government, local government in t- in, uh, in town. He'll then also be the first um, paid fire chief of the Anchorage Fire Department. And so he takes on a series of these roles, and he's and he's more or less a a community fixture here in Anchorage from from about the nineteen early nineteen twenties right through. Uh, the early 1940s when he dies tragically um, on a hunting trip. And so he's he's quite well known at the time. Interestingly enough, uh, Thomas Beavers people did not know that he was that he was black. Uh, he he was quite light skin. His mother was a uh, was a white woman. His father was African American, a formerly enslaved man uh, who the the two of them had met in Virginia. And Beavers makes his way from Virginia out west to Washington State. I think it was actually Tacoma, not Seattle. Um, and uh, and then he he comes up here in uh, like I said, late teens, early 1920s. And because he is of kind of mixed race descent, people and he and he does not volunteer the information that he is that he is African American or he is born of a his his father is black anyways. And so he he passes, right? You know, he kind of identifies as white or at least doesn't identify as black. 
and uh, and nobody seems to really question this until he dies. And when he dies, his sister comes up to town to uh, to claim his body. And she has considerably darker skin than he does. <laughs> and so people start to, at that point, really pose questions. And it, uh, it does come out that, in fact, he, uh, he is of African descent. Now, to the credit of the Anchorage people at the time, they, they don't seem all that troubled by this. And they, they are insistent that, that Tom be buried here in Anchorage and that he's not sent, his body is not returned to Virginia. He had left Virginia, didn't think that Virginia was a particularly amenable place for people like him to, uh, to come into adulthood. And so his sister ultimately leaves Alaska uh, knowing that Tom Beavers will be buried in the Anchorage Community Cemetery and that he was well regarded here. And to this day, of course, you can see Tom Beavers' gravesite if you go to the town cemetery just to, uh, just to the east of downtown. I see. And, you know, World War II greatly shaped Alaska's history. Um, what mm-hmm. can you tell me about life as an African-American in Alaska during this time? Well, you know, so as you pointed out, World War II is is in some ways the I, I think arguably, but but I would I would put po- I would posit this the really the most transformative of single event to shape Alaska um, far more than the than the uh, than the gold rush of the 1890s more than uh, maybe World War One and the Alaska Railroad with Anchorage although that's very important to Anchorage specifically but what World War Two does is that it 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 really militarizes the state in, in a fundamental way. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have um, you have all of these bases that were set up. You've got kind of the introduction of a pretty expansive uh, military force into Alaska. You've got Alaska becoming this this extraordinarily uh, geostra- geopolitical and geostrategic location. And so um, people start to really note that Alaska, Billy Mitchell, the famous father of the Air Force, says to something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, he who holds Alaska holds the world. Uh, You know, we're straddling the North Pacific, the Bering. We are quite close to East Asia, quite close to Russia, quite close, of course, to the American West Coast. All of this now in in the age of, um, of of air, you know, you can fly to any number. I, I can't remember the statistic, but I, I don't know how, how, what percentage of the world's population is within a nine hour flight of Anchorage, but it's, it's, it's quite substantial. And so uh, all of this becomes very clear in, in the midst of World War II when you've got, of course, the, um, the Pacific theater, you've got conflict in Asia, in addition to the European theater and the North African theater. And so as a result of that, you've got you've got tens of thousands of soldiers who will be coming through and a significant um, percentage of them are African-American. You see that probably most um, most notably in the construction of the Alaska Highway. And so they're they're up until um, 1943. There there really was no overland route to connect the uh, the lower 48 states to um, to Alaska and so this is very much so part of of the war effort to to forge this kind of primitive highway through the the wilderness through the Canadian wilderness into into Alaska and so within uh, within about a year for the most part 1942 is when a lot of the construction occurs uh, you get this. You get this road built that you can now link North America from uh, from the Mountain West, 
from the Pacific Northwest through Canada and into Alaska. And African-Americans are, are tasked with building um, pretty much the northern extent of the road. Uh, the black workforce on the Alaska Highway is, is roughly 40 percent. Um, Black men at the time were were heavily discriminated against within the military. They were not afforded the opportunity to use a lot of power tools. Their conditions were substandard compared to their white um, uh, the 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 uh, white soldiers that they served alongside, and and yet they they built the road over some of the some of the toughest stretches. So think of like um, Beaver Creek and the the deep interior where temperatures at the time saw the winter of uh, 1942 and the 1943 temperatures going down to you know 50 degrees below zero. And then, of course, you know, building through the summer, temperatures exceeding 85, even 90 degrees. And so uh, it was it was really quite um, tough conditions. But nonetheless, um, the, the Alaska Railroad is built on this kind of supercharged timeline. Uh, the Alaska Highway, I'm sorry, not the Alaska Railroad. But yeah, the Alaska Highway is built on the supercharged timeline. And, uh, and it's kind of changed the identity of the state. So that's one aspect in which African-Americans were involved during World War II. The other is in uh, the Aleutian Theater. Um, black men served in mostly uh, like in logistical support um, positions. Uh, African-American men were, were typically not permitted to serve in combat roles until you have the desegregation of the military in 1947. But uh, but nonetheless, you you do have African American um, engineer battalions and support battalions, uh, basically preparing to take back uh, the 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 Aleutian chain from occupation in uh, in Attu after the Japanese had had really taken their uh, had taken the island. And this, of course, was the the only North American theater of the war was the Aleutian theater, and African American men were. Um, contributors in the offensive and the uh, uh, in, in the theater more generally. And are there any notable African American soldiers um, during this, you know, either of the world wars that you'd like to touch on um, in in regards to Alaska? Yeah, let me think about that. So, um, hmm, I you know notable soldiers. I I think they're you know they're they're all kind of do, you know they're, they're all doing the same sorts of things. So I I don't know if if I if I would you know single out any any particular. Uh, I guess what I I maybe a couple people I I will note just because I I find the story somewhat interesting is that you in the Aleutians you had this is this is not an African American uh, fellow but Deshiel Hammett. Who was at the time one of the one of the leading fiction writers in the country? He was most f famously the author of uh, the Maltese Falcon and wrote a lot of what we think of today as like noir, noir fiction, um, kind of crime, hard-boiled fiction, stuff like that. And Deshiel Hammett was was very much so an ardent supporter of desegregation, and so he signs up for. Um, the military during World War One, during World War Two. I'm sorry, and he is he's seen as somebody who is kind of um, fringe, <laughs> not somebody who's necessarily fit to go and fight in in Europe or North Africa or you know the South Pacific. But the military does accept his um, uh, his voluntary uh, enlistment, 
and they send him to the Aleutians. And when he's in the Aleutians, he, he works with some black soldiers to integrate the Signal Corps. Uh, Alva Morris is, uh, is one of the black men who he, who he works closely with, and there's about five or six others. And so before you actually have the official desegregation of the American military in 1947, you have some of these, uh, some of these, some of the um, battalions and some of the infantry regiments in Alaska that are that are kind of desegregated, almost against the law. And so the the Signal Corps operating in the Aleutians is one of them. And I, I guess I would single that out because it's it's a it's a fascinating story, where you do have um, you know these pictures of African American soldiers working with white soldiers in ways that at the time. Are um, are actually kind of extra legal. Um, the the military was tightly regulated and segregation was very rigidly enforced. But it does in fact break down in some of these key places in Alaska during World War II, and and that I I argue kind of leads the way to the greater desegregation of the military that um, that Harry Truman signs into executive order. If you're just tuning in to the Kenai conversation, we're joined by Ian Hartman associate professor of history at the University of Alaska Anchorage, and author of numerous books on Alaska's black history. Now, let's fast forward to the post-war, you know, 1950s, 1960s, um, places, you know, in the rest of the United States, especially in the South, uh, African Americans, you know, they faced uh, much discrimination and also segregation. You know, what was life like for African Americans in Alaska during the post-war segregationist era? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, the, the short answer would be that it 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 would depend. And so, you know, Alaska doesn't have the the codified Jim Crow laws that we associate, as you point out, with like the American South. Um, Alaska is is more multiracial than you would find in many other places, like say the American South, or even in northern industrial cities where you have maybe a, a sizable black minority, some cases even a black majority in, in the American South, and then a white minority or a white majority, you know, basically two population groups. Alaska, you know, you always have the indigenous population. So the Alaska native population is always going to be the the largest visible minority. Um, later on it will be it will be the Asian population. And the black population is uh, is a bit smaller than that. So the black population in Alaska never really exceeds 10%. And in fact, it, most of the time, it doesn't exceed 5%. Now, to address your question, the most of the targeted discrimination that would have occurred in Alaska would have been directed towards Alaska Native peoples. Um, that's that's pretty well documented. There, there are a lot of historians and observers who've written about that. Um, at the same time, of course, you know, there, there were other minority populations that did face discrimination. Um, African Americans were one of them. And, and where that where you would have really have seen that would have been in what we think of as urban Alaska and, and Anchorage and Juneau and Fairbanks, where you have pretty clearly documented cases of housing discrimination and restrictive covenants, um, simply meaning that in uh, the development of, of Anchorage, for example, 
certain communities you would not have been permitted to to buy into these communities or purchase a home unless you signed unless you were white in the first place and then unless you would have signed a covenant that would have um, that would have made it so you when you went to resell your home that you would only resell it to a white person and so out of that you get uh, you get these very kind of um, I guess segregated communities where uh, where Alaska Natives and African Americans and to some extent uh, Asian Americans would have lived and in Anchorage you know that community is most famously Fairview, uh, Mountain View to some extent. Uh, I, I don't know the geography of, of Juneau and Fairbanks quite as well but there are certainly enclaves that maybe would have been more associated with um, with Alaska Native and Black residents, you know, same would have been true of uh, of Juno, I suspect. But um, but you know that kind of breaks down by the nineteen by the nineteen fifties and sixties when when those restrictive covenants are really no longer able to be enforced, and so then you start to see uh, greater integration of uh, of neighborhoods. You also would have found the time. Uh, like a civil rights movement that would have taken shape in the in the 1950s and 60s, primarily around issues of um, job discrimination. Very famously in Anchorage, there is the boycott of cars. Cars uh, cars refuse to hire any um, any black workers and. Uh, the the first black worker they hire, Richard Watts, was hired really only after uh, the black community in Anchorage mobilized and uh, and uh, kind of picketed outside of cars demanding that they hire uh, a, an African American. And Watts is hired, and in fact, interestingly enough, he stays with the company and uh, and and ends up in management and, and and did quite well for himself. That's that's kind of a real. Um, symbol of what can happen when people work together to uh, to demand equal rights, and so that's that's kind of one uh, one story that I'll point out. But uh, but there are others just like that. I mean, you know, there there are marches and there are rallies and there are boycotts, uh, really all across um, uh, Anchorage, Fairbanks, and and maybe to a lesser extent Juneau. And, and again, I'm a little bit less familiar with some of the smaller communities, but I would suspect that you know if you were willing to do the do the research, you could probably find evidence of civil rights mobilizations occurring in smaller communities around Anchorage as well, uh, around Alaska as well. I'm sorry. And you know, I read that um, numerous publications said that African Americans living in Alaska, particularly in Anchorage, were quote high on the totem pole uh, race relations wise. You know, did Alaska see an increase in African Americans moving to you know Alaska after World War II? Yeah. So, so you're that's a great quote. You're referring to um, uh, was it Jet or Ebony, the uh, uh, magazine that that made the case that. Uh, based upon the experience of a couple of uh, of African Americans who had moved to Alaska during the World War era, the Cold War era, even uh, that that they uh, that others should consider doing the same. Uh, that was really born out of the experience of high wages. And so, one of the things that Alaska has long had going for it, probably less so today. Uh, than, than maybe in the past is that, that you know the wages here were quite high and and this the the work was plentiful uh, that was primarily fueled by federal spending particularly in the 1950s and 60s you, you know you think of how 
um, the military bases as it had expanded and how that required a civilian workforce and uh, the community is growing and anytime you have a growing community you know you need people to build homes and you need plumbers and you need electricians and you need uh, people in the skilled trades but then just also you know people to 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 swing a hammer and so it was it was long true during those years that you know even if you couldn't necessarily buy into uh, a neighborhood due to restrictive covenants, you know, you you could likely find work here, and you could likely find work that would pay you a wage that was, in many cases, um, higher than what you would find in the lower 48. Now, of course, that that becomes especially true during the pipeline era. Uh, again, you know, with the 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 uh, with the oil strike in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and then ultimately the uh, the construction of the pipeline in the in the mid to late 70s, you have tens of thousands of people come to Alaska uh, to work on the pipeline, to kind of work in the uh, in the oil industry, and and these are generally very high paying jobs. And and by the time you do get to that moment, the 1970s, uh, you know you 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 would have been kind of on that other side of a civil rights movement. Not to suggest you didn't have job discrimination because you did. Uh, that's documented. But yet uh, there was still quite a bit of opportunity for. Um, for for just about anybody who would have come up, I mean, there was a there was a labor shortage. There were jobs to be found, and uh, and all you need to do is just kind of talk to people who lived up here during the pipeline era and and ask them how much they made in you know 1977, 1978, 79, uh, and and it's it's just adjusting for inflation. I mean, it, there was a lot of money running through this state at the time and uh and african americans were able to participate in that to some extent for sure and kind of touching on something that you you talked about a few minutes ago you know what can you tell me about african american contributions to alaska's development in the years following world war ii you know 1940s 1950s 1960s yeah so uh it's it, they're pretty extensive and and again i think the uh the point to remember here is that that African Americans in uh, in Alaska by these years do not constitute a particularly um, uh, high high figure, right? And and so that those numbers are pretty low comparatively. You know, again, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of of five to ten percent at most. But yet, uh, sort of across industries, you see African Americans pretty well represented. Uh, again, talking about Anchorage, one of the wealthiest uh, African, one of the wealthiest people in Anchorage. This is just kind of before the the pipeline days. Is a woman named Zula Swanson. Zula Swanson is an African American woman. She moves up here from the uh, from the American South. She invests in real estate. She's got some. She's got some connections to sex work. You know, very likely she had she had been a sex worker herself in in her earlier years, but kind of gets involved in in what you might think of as kind of the seedy underbelly of Anchorage life at the time. But then also parlays some of the uh, some of the money that she makes in that into what we might consider maybe more legit businesses. I, I, I it's to make a distinction, I suppose, but um, but that would have been like real estate and uh, and office buildings and things like that. And so she actually had her property just north of of where I'm I'm sitting right now, up in Goose Lake, which is roughly the you know where the University of Alaska Anchorage 
campuses today, if you just kind of walk out of my office and, and walk straight north, maybe not more than more than a couple hundred yards, you would run into the property of Zula Swanson. And at the time it was it was one of the more more opulent homes in town. It has since burned down, unfortunately, in the 19 early 1970s. But uh, but Zula Swanson is, is kind of a great example of of the grit and determination that that many of the African-American people who moved to Alaska in the post-war years uh, displayed. And so Zula Swanson was right up until the, the time of the pipeline, uh, as I mentioned, regarded as one of the wealthiest people in, uh, in the state. And, you know, I, I read that during the post-war era for a while, African-Americans had, a, had some issues, had some trouble purchasing um, land and homes in Anchorage. You know, what can mm -hmm. you tell me about the rise and fall of uh, East Chester Flats, Alaska's largest known black neighborhood? Yeah, so you've 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 done your research before talking to me. I always appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, so you know, East Chester Flats is uh, a, a a name of a neighborhood or community that may be a bit unfamiliar to Alaskans today. Um, but if you were to go back to the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, uh, you would have known it well. It, this is kind of the the southern extent of of Fairview, kind of right along where the, the for for anybody who's familiar with Anchorage, if you're um, if you're familiar with Chester Creek. Uh, and the Chester Creek Greenbelt and the the bike trail, uh, you're you're talking about that area, just kind of to the north of Chester Creek, kind of to the south of Fairview. It's a little bit easier if I if I had a map and I could show everybody who's who's tuning into this. But hopefully that's a that's a bit of a description to orient yourself. And so, East Chester Flats was this small community, and and again because. Um, people of African descent, but also Alaska natives and uh, and various other uh, minority populations typically could not buy homes in maybe let's say like the the kind of wealthier you know quote unquote nice areas of town. Think of like you know West Anchorage and Turnagain and Rogers Park. Um, those communities they oftentimes had to congregate in. Uh, in this particular area. And so East Chester Flats was probably the most well-known at the time. And it also developed as, as a kind of a center for entertainment. And so it really did have a reputation of, uh, of a 24-hour party spot. Uh, you know, you could go and find live entertainment and music and gambling and dancing. Uh, you could find, you know, some, some kind of greasy spoons and some places to to uh, to eat in the in the middle of the night to maybe exercise your your hangover or whatever the case might be and so uh, East Chester was a place that that people from around Anchorage would kind of come to uh, and and it really did develop a reputation as this um, as this entertainment district for a period of time and and it would draw in performers national performers ultimately east chester is going to be be bulldozed and, and raised and, and really then kind of folded into the bigger community of uh of fairview which again should be familiar to anybody who's who's ever spent any time here in anchorage and so um, that really happens through the process of urban renewal in the 1960s and 70s and so um today you know we see the we see the green belt and we see the southern extent of fairview there is the uh there's the east chester home the retirement home and retirement community 
uh, that's kind of in the area of where the former Eastchester flats were. But there was a lot of federal money that came in to address, quote, blight. And, uh, and so you found you would see this in a lot of uh, cities across the United States where, um, where black communities had lived they were really targeted to be renewed. And, and what that meant was that they were more or less torn down with federal money and federal subsidies and in their place, interstate highways would be built or um, uh, public housing might be built or various parks and recreation and things like that. And so East Chester Flats is an example on the one hand of a, of a multi-ethnic, diverse community in which uh, which African-Americans uh, lived in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, but it also stands up as one of the examples of these communities that is ultimately sacrificed during the, um, during the well, 19, 1960s mostly is when you, you, you see, uh, when, excuse me, when you would see a lot of these urban renewal projects really take root. And so um, it's, uh, it's no longer a place that, that you can go to to see a see a jazz performance or uh, or drink a beer. Now let's circle back to the civil rights uh, movement in Alaska. You you touched on a picket of the Cars grocery store in Anchorage. Were there mm-hmm. any other known pickets or marches, um, you know, in Alaska during this era? Oh sure, yeah. Uh, there there's some there's some good um, photographic uh, evidence of of some marches and some pickets in Fairbanks for sure, um, in Anchorage really right through the 1960s and 70s. There there's pretty consistent civil rights activity, um, you know, agitation for. Uh, for laws that would local laws that would address like um, housing discrimination, but also again like employment discrimination. And so, if you were to go through the the archives and through the newspapers, you, you'd find pretty consistently, really from about the nineteen early nineteen sixties on, um, evidence of uh, of various forms of civil rights marches and mobilizations. And I say that um, you know from a couple of different perspectives. There, you know, the the Alaska Native community will uh, will really come together uh, under the under the kind of cause of land claims, right? And so if you think about um, the late 1960s and early 1970s with the run up to the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, that required, of course, Alaska Native peoples to really self organize and to uh, and to demand that their their land rights were recognized, particularly as oil was was really poised to transform Alaska's economic situation. And so you can you can find uh, all kinds of, of examples of uh, civil rights activism, what we might want to call that broadly um, from the 1960s on. Now, Willard Bowman was the first African-American to be elected to the Alaska legislature in 1970. What can you tell Mm. me about his journey, you know, from moving to Alaska to being elected? Yeah, so Willard Bowman is a is a fascinating individual, and uh, and and you're correct. You, you actually you made a little bit of a fine distinction, which I, I don't know if you intended to or not. You said he was the first elected African American. That's correct. There there was um, a, a black woman in office before, but uh, but she was um, she was actually not elected. She was appointed to office, and so Bowman. Uh, 
uh, is elected and uh, and he serves in the legislature. This was after he had served in Governor Egan's administration on what was um, what was the a human rights committee, and so the human rights committee was Governor Egan's attempt to to start to address what he saw as some of the um, some of the social issues and problems afflicting Alaska in uh, in the 1960s. And so Willard Bowman had had gained a reputation as kind of an advocate of civil rights and uh, and social justice, really going back to the years of um, of Governor Egan. And so then he is able to you know, really use his work in the Egan administration and, uh, and his profile kind of rises and he then goes into elected office here in Alaska and, uh, and is a public servant for a few years. Ultimately, uh, Willard Bowman dies quite young of cancer. I, I, I don't know exactly how old he is, but, but I, I don't believe he was, he was maybe 50 at most. I, I think he actually passed away in his 40s. And so it was a real tragedy because Willard Bowman was somebody who, who was very likely, if he had lived longer, made an even deeper impact on uh, on Alaska. He was somebody who, you know, may have may have run for for office at a at a statewide level, or may have may have been more involved in Alaska politics, you know, right through the 1980s or 90s. Who who knows? But he was certainly a life taken far too young. Uh, today, of course, people may recognize the name Willard Bowman for the elementary school that is named after him down in South Anchorage. And uh, and even that's a little bit of an interesting story because uh, if people are familiar with the demographics of Anchorage, South Anchorage is, is the affluent part of town. And, uh, and Willard Bowman, uh, was somebody who circulated in uh, in various communities, and he was somebody who was very good at explaining to kind of affluent white Alaskans why uh, civil rights was important and why they should care about a better future for Alaska Native residents and African Americans. And so Willard Bowman was somebody who was really kind of a a transcendent um, politician and somebody who was able to really bring a message of um, of civil rights again and social justice to a broad audience and had some success doing so. And you, you touched on it um, a few minutes ago. Tell me about the other African-American individual who was appointed to office before Willard Bowman's time. Yeah, I, I, I do you remember I, it? Her name is escaping me. I don't have my book in front of me. Hold on here. Let me let me just make sure you're probably looking at it. Um, Blanche McSmith. Good grief. <laughs> it, yeah. So it's funny, you, you, you know, you write you write the books and you and you do the research and you have all these names in your mind and then you just needed to be prompted. And so as I was saying, so he's, saying he's probably going to ask me who I'm referring to, but I'm referring to Blanche McSmith. Um, and uh, Blanche McSmith was born in Texas and she had come up to, uh, to Alaska again during those post-war years. And Blanche McSmith was absolutely fascinating. She was a brilliant writer. She was somebody who would take to the pages of um, of the black newspaper in town, the Alaska Spotlight, which was started by George Anderson. And uh, and Blanche McSmith would just write these broadsides in which she detailed the um, the racism that she had encountered and the. Uh, and you know she wouldn't necessarily use Jim Crow in Alaska, but she would she would make the case that um, that discrimination was rampant and that it needed to be addressed. And she was really fearless in her uh, in her advocacy. And this in turn got the attention of some Democratic politicians in Alaska. 
um, right around the time of statehood. And, um, and she had, and, you know, she had been involved in local government and uh, managed to, uh, to, again, you know, just kind of catch the attention of, uh, of Egan and was appointed into office and then ultimately served for a period of time and then went on to do, uh, you know, various other pursuits. And, you know, in the 1970s, the construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline began. You know, what can you tell me about African-American contributions to this project? Yeah, the the black contributions to the project would have been would have been pretty, uh, I, I guess, extensive. You, you know, the sort of like the um, uh, the military, you you had a you had a job to do, and and so it's not the case that I would necessarily point out any maybe single individual who uh, who was responsible for a certain aspect of the project. I think it was kind of an all hands on deck situation. Uh, the maybe the the most interesting cultural artifact to come out of the pipeline era would have been the famous movie Pipe Dreams, which was set in pipeline era Alaska and uh, was about a, a black woman who comes up to Alaska in the 1970s, and she eventually ends up falling in love. And it's it was it was not a uh, a particularly good movie, but it, it does kind of demonstrate that there were black people here uh, during the pipeline era, and that they were involved in the construction. And it and it does kind of provide an interesting perspective in that regard. Uh, you know, I I sometimes single out. Uh, a dear friend of mine, Ed Wesley, who was instrumental in a lot of this project, uh, Ed came up to work and on the pipeline, and he actually had uh, had done quite well for himself and had some property out, I think, towards uh, Fort Yukon, and he and he's relayed some of the stories of what it uh, of what it was like just to work on the pipeline, and and you know he's somebody who's very very clear minded about. Uh, about the persistence and presence of racism in Alaska, but you know he also is somebody who has uh, who has found lots of opportunities here and, and has done well for himself and raised a family and uh, and so the Wesleys are are very much so involved uh, civically engaged here in Anchorage and so you know Ed is somebody whose story I, I tell a little bit in uh, in the book about his experience on the pipeline, but you know presumably there are there are many many others. Um, who, who I, whose story I don't tell, unfortunately, but just the kind of day-to-day work involved in, in the pipeline construction and, uh, you know, some of these folks, because the pay was quite high, uh, you know, maybe they, they left Alaska after the pipeline was done and they were able to afford a house that maybe they couldn't have afforded otherwise. Um, maybe some of them were able to send their, uh, their kids to college. Some of them absolutely stayed right here in Alaska and raised families and contributed to the uh, to the fabric of life here in Anchorage or Fairbanks. And what can you tell me about Alaska's black history in the modern day from say 1975 to today? Well, you know, I, I, I think it, it, uh, it persists. I think that's maybe the, the best, the best word I, I could use, you know, anybody who has lived in Alaska for any number of time, for any number of years, knows that, you know, we live in this beautiful state and there there are some really wonderful people who live here and people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and do what they can to make their community better. That's That was true in, in here in Anchorage in 19, 1924. It was true in 1954 and it's true in 2024. 
but I think, you know, in, in regards to the black experience, and again, I always want to be careful and, and, and broaden this statement, but also the Alaska Native experience, the, um, the Asian American experience here in Alaska, I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of these folks have kind of done two things at once, or more than two things, which is um, encountered opportunities, and, and many people will be quite quick to talk about the opportunities that they've been able to um, take advantage of, but then also have had to had the lived experience of racial discrimination and uh, and hatred and comments and, and in some cases violence. They've encountered that too. And so, you know, modern day Anchorage, I think, is is a place that is uh, is fairly tolerant. But at the same time, I think we would be a little bit naive if if we didn't recognize that that certain attitudes and um, and certain hostilities persist among some percentage of the population. And uh, in the black population today, I think is is vibrant. Uh, you see African American representation in uh, in state government, you see it in local government, you see it in business, you see it here at the university, although I'd like to see greater representation just sort of across the board at, at the university. And I, I think that that's, that's really important to note. I mean, you see it in the legal community. There, there are you know, brilliant uh, black attorneys and black business owners. And so I think it's, it's really, I think, just recognizing uh, the sort of richness of uh, of of Alaska's diverse population and, and recognizing that uh, that so many people have contributed to this state, uh, African Americans certainly among them. And are there any notable African American figures from the modern day that we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about? Oh goodness, I mean, there's there there are a lot. <laughs> uh, well, I uh, yeah, let me let me maybe make a, a few a few points. So. Uh, a woman that I always like to to spotlight, who's who's no longer with us, is M. Ashley Dickerson. Um, M. Ashley Dickerson was born in uh, in the South in Alabama. Uh, she was actually among the first, maybe the first, black woman to pass the bar exam. Um, this is going back now to the fifties and sixties uh, in Alabama, and then makes her way to Indy, Indiana, where she's, if not the first, certainly among the first, uh, black women to, uh, to pass the bar there, makes her way to the Pacific Northwest, uh, and just sort of at each stage, just something is pushing her farther away from the American South, and she eventually ends up in Alaska. And, uh, and is a practicing attorney here in Alaska for many years. She, uh, she actually sues the university system uh, for gender discrimination and wins. She uh, has some success bringing a case against the Anchorage Police Department over, uh, over discriminatory policing and, uh, and has some success with that. And, uh, and M. Ashley Dickerson is just I, somebody who I like to say is just a, a real and indomitable personality and, and a fighter. She also, interestingly enough, and there's some great photos of this in, um, in the book, she was somebody who knew Rosa Parks. And so people may not know this, but Rosa Parks actually visits Alaska um, at the personal invitation of M. Ashley Dickerson. And she, uh, and she is a, a guest of honor to the Alaska NAACP. And, and you can find these images of M. Ashley Dickerson and a, a quite old um, Rosa Parks, you know, th this happens later in both of their lives. 
And so uh, I, I always like to mention uh, M. Ashley Dickerson. I just find her to be an endlessly fascinating figure. Uh, somebody else I, I always want to mention is, is Cal Williams. Cal Williams uh, has been central to the research that I've, I've done and has, knows more of this history than I do. I mean, Cal Williams is, is the authority on Black history in Alaska. Um, he's an authority on Alaska history generally, but he is somebody who not only has lived the history, um, Dr. Williams came in the 1960s. Uh, he was born in Louisiana. He, uh, he comes up here and kind of worked a, a number of jobs. Um, he got involved in politics and has been served as president of the NAACP. He's run for office. He has done all kinds of uh, all kinds of things throughout Anchorage, and, and really his singular focus has been uh, making sure that Anchorage is a welcoming community for everybody. And, and, and he is just he's just lived the history. I mean, you know, he's, he's come through the sixties and the civil rights movements and come through the seventies and the pipeline era through the 1980s and the transformation of, of Anchorage really into more of a modern city and, and kind of it, it every one of these moments really from the 1960s on Cal uh, Williams has had kind of once a front row seat, but he's also been an active participant in, uh, in the shaping of, Alaska's Black history, and so I, I would definitely be negligent if I if I didn't point out the contributions that Cal Williams has made to uh, to Alaska. Oh, and and if I could, sorry, I I I keep uh, I keep thinking about all the 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 different people who have who've contributed. The uh, the University of Alaska Anchorage has the George Harper Collection, and so George Harper. Uh, was a uh, he actually worked for government, but uh, had some had a net background in computers. But he he was just kind of a I guess what we might think of as like an amateur historian who was always collecting documents and stories. And so uh, much of what I've learned about the history of African American involvement in Alaska came from George Harper's research. And so if anybody is interested in the collection. Uh, that George Harper had left to the university, uh, come by the consortium library and get into the documents and you can learn a whole heck of a lot. And, uh, you know, overall, how would you say African-Americans and their contributions have shaped Alaska as we know it today? Yeah, well, I, I think, it, it, as I said, it's it's really quite impressive to think that a population that has uh, has really never exceeded a, a fairly small percent is uh, is seen represented in basically every Alaska industry. You know, again, whether that's government or politics or uh, or law or business. And so, when you when you see, you know, can I answer the question? How? What is the definitive way? Uh, a singular way that African Americans have shaped Alaska. I, I don't think I can answer that question. What I, I would say is that um, that African American peoples have have worked to make the state uh, more equitable, more accessible, uh, have have ensured that job opportunities are available to all, that housing uh, is open to all. And so I, I think that's where you see the contributions of of people who are willing to maybe take collective action to address. Um, to address historical wrongs, but then at the same time, not necessarily dwell on um, 
uh, on that. You know, I mean, still move, in other words, move forward and, and always look for opportunities while also trying to make the place better. And I think that's what, what this history is really about. It's, it's recognizing that um, that racism has been kind of a persistent scourge in the nation and certainly in Alaska, but yet it's not the only thing that defines people's experience. What also defines people's experience is that perseverance and human ingenuity and, and ability to work together to do really big and important things, whether that's the Alaska Highway, whether it's um, driving uh, the Japanese military from the Aleutian Islands, whether it's uh, whether it's sort of success in the legal field, whatever it might be, uh, you can find um, Black uh, individuals making a difference. And that's all for this episode of the Kenai Conversation. A special thank you to Ian Hartman for joining us. You can hear the Kenai Conversation every week on Wednesday at 10 a.m. and Saturday at 5 p.m. here on KDLL. Or you can find it on our website, kdll.org. I'm Hunter Morrison. Thanks for tuning in.